Right, great. Welcome back. Check, check, check. Um, chapter three in uh, Sounds Like London. Uh, we're really lucky again tonight to have uh, photographer Eddie Ocher with us. I hope I pronounced that right. Oh, that, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Eddie is one of the people that was responsible for um, cataloging or, or um, archiving, if you like, the... Um, the drum and bass scene. He became um, virtually a Goldie's in-house photographer and captured this uh, this scene in a way that, from the inside rather than the outside looking in. And uh, we're going to go through a bunch of his photographs now and talk about not only um, what the photographs meant or who maybe who's in them and how they affected or, or were part of the scene, but also, the notion of photography um, within Clubland and how important it was and how it happened. I mean, when I used to go clubbing and when Jazzy was running his clubs, I mean, the idea that someone would take a photograph in a club was utterly ridiculous. You'd, you'd sooner take your trousers off than you would take a photograph. And now, of course, you know, it was a pain in the butt as well to take pictures. You had to go and buy a film, load it in the camera in the dark, take the pictures then, then take it down the chemist to get developed and all of this. So it just, you know, things have changed now. This is a long time before the iPhone generation with or the selfie generation. So please give it up for Eddie Achir. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, as we... As we talk, I'm going to um, flick through a few pictures that I've selected from um, Eddie's massive archive. He, said he, he did me a real favour about two weeks ago. He said, here's my pictures, you pick the ones you want. And I had to spend three days going through this amount of pictures he gave me. Nice. <laughs> he did it. I, I, I can't do it. Okay, let, I mean, let's kick off with this. I mean, you're part of this... Um, this drum and bass scene, we've got that's that's Goldie there, isn't it? That's Goldie on the right, uh, Cleveland Watkiss on the left, and they're pouring out champagne. So yeah, I believe that's a Lanson, not a Bollinger. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's important to know. All right, but um, this was the whole thing. I mean, tell us a bit about that scene and the uh, the champagne and the kind of celebratory nature of it. Yeah, I, th I think I don't know. It's sort of. I don't know what happened. I think something happened in the 90s where you'd walk into a club and you'd it'd work out cheaper with you and your mates buying a bottle of champagne than it would buying a, a beer. And also, our generation, we weren't really lager drinkers, you know. Champagne seemed okay. And you mixed it with brandy and you could really go places with it. <laughs> yeah. So that was really the drink of choice. Bring your own brandy, buy the champagne, and pretty much get wasted. Um, I believe Goldie must have been celebrating something that day. Hard to say what, and actually that's not true at all. Goldie would always buy a bottle of champagne for everybody. Um, and so, just to get everyone warmed up into the zone. Also, I think what's telling about this is there's no record on the left-hand deck. So maybe someone was something, someone's birthday or something had to be said, the sound system stopped, Goldie starts talking, someone starts saying something, champagne gets poured, and then along comes a fat beat bass line and you go back into the hole. Well, just the thing about that scene, I yeah. mean, it, it was... Uh, a sound system scene, wasn't it? Was it? it was. It was very much kind of um, self-defining and self-regulated. Absolutely, I think the sound system, in particular, at, at the Blue Note, especially certainly on a Sunday, would have been Eskimo sound. I think 
they had a very specific sound system that they would bring in just to make sure the sonics were right so that the room could vibrate, you know, hum yeah. to that frequency. And it was essentially a sound system. And it was also a safe space, really, because what happened is jungle music had emerged and become a very real thing in London club culture. You know, we knew jungle and, and it had a reputation, had a bad reputation in the same way grime did. Um, and for some of the older cats, they kind of wanted somewhere else to go. And the Blue Note was the perfect place for that. Well, it's just an interesting thing. You were saying that um, uh, Jungle had a bad reputation, but I always thought what I loved about the Jungle scene was it was actually really cheerful. People oh. really seemed to be having a laugh. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Jungle was a lot more lighthearted, a lot more easygoing, and a lot more pleasant than anything that had come before that, whether or anything that was going on at the time, whether it was hip-hop raves, which always kicked off into a fight, uh, ragga raves, which always kicked off, um, Jungle was always well-dressed, everyone smelt nice, and, you know, everyone drank champagne. And, yeah, I mean, what's wrong with that? Uh, this, this, this I find really interesting. It's the notion that, um, as a sound system scene, it was literally for the people, by the people, for us, by us. And it defined itself as a cheerful, upful scene, um, which didn't make, you know, the the... Outside looking in was looking for these. Uh, I remember the ridiculous stories written about the Pickett's Lock um, raves, you know, up yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and it didn't seem to make sense the idea that you could get a bunch of black kids in a space and actually they're having a bit of a laugh. Oh yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was. It was, it was demonised, and I, I know the journalists that were demonising it because they could make money on it. Uh, there was one particular writer for the Daily Star who insisted that there was a Gabba Nazi rave in Brixton. And they had a picture of a, a, a woman wearing thigh-high leather boots on the front cover of the star saying, well, that's it, that's a Nazi, thigh-high black leather boots. I mean, it was ridiculous. The whole, the whole, the, the media was ridiculous. Still is ridiculous to this day, but um, yeah, you can't underestimate the power of young people coming together. Now th this one I picked, and I, I gave these titles as I was, you know, so I could find them again. I just called this one Chaos. Yeah, that's, I mean, the Blue Note Club wasn't a particularly big club. Uh, the exhaust vents at the top on the right-hand side always started dripping after a certain point because there was so much sweat in the room. Don't forget this was a time when you could still smoke in the club, so it would have been smoky, sweaty. But junglists, we smell nice, so it's all right. Um... And yeah, and I think if the hands are in the air, a tune had just been dropped, and it's probably a few seconds before the bass line drops before I, I take the picture. Um, so you know in most tunes there's a drop, you know. In drum and bass, intro, drop, silence, bass line, fucking chaos. That's the moment before that happens. This, uh, was, uh, this was the thing that really uh, caught my attention about this, the idea that this... This really is a rave, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it really is apparent chaos in there. Yeah, mm. it's everybody's having a bit of a laugh, and it's really actually kind of ordered. Yeah, yeah, no, no, there's all there's respect. There's always respect because this is this is downstairs in the basement. Uh, upstairs, um, I've forgotten his name, but there was a Jamaican guy who was always cooking food on a Sunday because we had to eat, obviously. So you could get your rice and peas and chicken upstairs, then come downstairs and lose your mind. So and then. Down the back would have been the staircase that would have taken you up, up, and there was another staircase just where I'm standing by the bar. Um, 
but yeah, it, it was crowded from the moment it opened. And don't forget, this club finished at midnight on a Sunday. So doors open at six or seven. It's crowded by eight, and by nine o'clock, it's, it's heaving, it's a rave on a Sunday. And then as you walked out, as you walked down to Old Street, obviously it wasn't Old Street as we know it now, it would just be dead. You know, you just literally walk home, catch a bus home, and that was that. It's like you've just come out of a rave, and everyone else is just coming out of church. Tell me, tell me about the, um, the photography aspect of it. I mean, you started documenting this as a scene. Yeah, I, I started documenting just at the, tail, at the early doors of Jungle at the end of Hardcore because I loved hardcore music, because hardcore was proper, happy hardcore, not the happy hardcore that you might know, but original British London happy hardcore was funny. You know, it was funny music, but with these really hard hip-hop beats that were sped up underneath it. What happened in Jungle is that the black kids came into hardcore and they added a bass line to it. So it's a sound system. So, so again, hardcore raves were sound systems in their right, but they were those crusty sound systems with, you know, that you'd find in the fields, I don't know, like Clapham Common. God, no, I do know what fields are. I'm just thinking, I'm just sitting there thinking, I completely forgot about white, crusty sound systems. Like, they're still going, aren't they? Like, over in Cornwall, they're still there. They're still raving, like, you know, Psytrance now, but they're still on it. But anyway, that's, those guys met the Yardies, and we grew up in the jungle. It's fucking amazing. All of us dancing under one roof, the Krusties. And what the Krusties gave us, I'll have to be fair, skunk. They they had it. They had they had those hydroponic farms and those dogs and we're like, What are you growing in there? They were like weed, we're like, No way. And then we'd see this whole new strain that we'd never seen before. And that changed drum and bass. That that's what made drum and bass. Because jungle was we were smoking weed. By the time we got the drum and bass we were on skunk and it got much harder. In fact I'll prove that point to you now. I will play as my first record Valley of the Shadows by Andy C, which was like late hardcore, early jungle. And then I'll play the Chase and Status version that came out a year ago. And that's the difference between skunk and weed. <laughs> so, shall we start with the weed? <laughs> so this would have come out in what, 94, 93, sort of tail Yeah. Getting a rush already, like a ecstasy flashback. Here we go. I probably wants to MC over this. Oh, I'll point out the drop.
You don't have to hear all of it, do you? But I think what's important to mention is that the long dark tunnel, this room felt like a long dark tunnel, except with a strobe light in the distance. And it's funny, I think I can name pretty much everyone in there. Um, I know that's Mark Gilmore, he's a jazz drummer now. Andrew Green, he's a writer now. But anyway, so. Oh, do you want to hear the next version? The Chase and Status version. Difference between skunk and weed, I can't get over that. So that's, that would have been Valley of the Shadows, the original one that came out on Andy C's label. And then recently they remixed it, well, Chase and Status did. And it's a beautiful version, I have to say. The new one's actually... Let's go. This sound, as you hear it, was invented in this club. So jungle was like what was happening in London. That was what happened in all the other raves. And the boys in this club wanted their sound to be darker, harder, and certainly more skunky. And it became this sound, where it's more hype. I don't know if you can hear the difference between the reggae and the old sound and the hype and this new sound. But, um, but the thing is, this sound hasn't changed in 20 years. Whereas when the years of drummer bass and jungle, it was changing every two months. It would go to Birmingham and they'll change it and bring back a whole new sound. And then with Bristol, Bristol had its own sound. Ronnie Size, they had their own sound. And it's just weird how this sound is the same sound we had in 95, but not the sound we had in 94. But anyway. I tell you, I don't think you're the only person in the room appreciating the difference between skunk and weed looking out at this yeah. um, audience now. Yeah, it had to be said. But uh, we were talking about photography within the club. I mean, were, were you a photographer? Yeah, I've, 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 yeah I sort of started documenting the scene with, with hardcore and I realised the problems there and then. Firstly, um, focusing. You can't focus in the dark because I, I can't see. So that was the first thing I realised when I started doing hardcore raves. And then using a the flash as well was a bit of an issue as well because um, people don't like flashes in clubs, especially if they're on things. Um, um, and also the smoke was a problem. So by the time I started working with Goldie, I'd refined the whole process in the sense that I'd bought a camera that had uh, autofocus, because it did exist in the 90s, but a really particular type of autofocus in a way that I could... Um, it sent out this laser beam. It sent out this beam of... This, it literally sent out a laser beam into the and would hit you and then... 
focus on you and then I could fire the flash and it would shoot. Then I could reprogram the flash so that it could fire and then the shutter would stay open so it would allow all the lights to streak in. And then the other thing I did was I cross-processed. So I would shoot on transparency film, which is known as slide film, but process it as a negative, which would then intensify the colours more. Because what I was thinking of was giving Jungle its own visual aesthetic. I thought it deserved it. And once I got to drum and bass, I'd refined it down to this particular style. And I still have the camera now. It's a Canon EOS 10 with a 24mm lens on it. Um, you needed a particular kind of lens on it so the flash didn't, so there was no shadow on the subjects. But that was my way of giving this music an identity as it was being well, made. That's an interesting point because previous to that, so many things appeared and disappeared simply because they didn't have this visual identity. I mean, like Lovers Rock Reggae, for instance. I mean, there's sold hundreds of thousands of records Absolutely. and there's probably five photos of uh, yeah. Lovers Rock Reggae. Yeah. As you a know, scene, yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah, and the same ones crop up all the time. Yeah, I didn't know Lovers Rock was a British thing. I had no idea it was invented in this country. I just assumed it was reggae music, and it wasn't. It, it is, but it, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's of this island. So what I'm saying is nobody documented it. Mm. You know, nobody took photos. Nobody. You might get a few photos of artists, mm. but nothing of a scene, nothing that gave you the kind of 360 degrees of what it looked like. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for Goldie for pulling me in and inviting me around to his flat and saying, look, Eddie, I'm doing this club and I want you to document it. But also the scene itself was very conscious of documenting itself and always had its own in-house photographers to sort of document but it did. So stables. Oh, so yeah. they'd already cracked the idea yeah. that you've got to do this. Yeah, because they were promoters as well as label owners as well as DJs. So they needed the pictures to promote their clubs. And also because the media was so aggressive and so anti the scene, we had to have our own images to then put in the, our own magazines or, or in the face or an ID. Because otherwise, if the sun turned up, they'll say, guy smoking split. They'll say, crack house in Dalston. And then the police would be in a week later and shut the whole thing down. Because that's how aggressive and disgusting it was. I mean, the interesting thing about that is that is sound system culture. That's DIY. What do we need to get over this? This is the same thing as guys making records and putting them with food distributors because the record distributors won't touch them. And yeah. Right, we've got to uh, document it for ourselves. It's it's always been DIY culture. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm still proud of even the new generations of, you know, the, the Vicky Grouts who are documenting, who have documented their environments, um, all the different clubs that have come since. Some of them, I don't know if they've been conscious by the labels or the promoters themselves, but the, we've now in a world where some people have actually gone in with their cameras and told their stories. And I think that's really the most powerful thing we can do now. So you, you never had any um, problems other than sort of technical issues? Of, um yeah, never, never had any problems. I was, I, was a, I was a raver as much as they were. Um, technically, it was the only issue, is just having the right technology to make sure I could capture the shots as they happen, because these, these moments are so fleeting. You know, it happens in a moment. Goldie gets a gold disc that week. Um, and out it comes. He doesn't know about it. And th that's Goldie's manager, Trevor. Um, the gold disc, Goldie, Clarkie in the background. Um, well, what, what I found great about this um, thing is, that as again, part of the scene that you've captured here, is that Goldie was given his gold disc in this club, you know, with people sort of two foot away from him. And I found looking through your pictures, there was so 
little difference between artists and the crowd. It's like one could have been the other yeah. uh, last week or whatever. Yeah. No, and that's the odd thing. Sometimes when you're looking in the crowd, you're looking at other artists who, or individuals that went on to become artists. Um, DJ Crust, when he came to... So imagine how fragmented the scene was. Every city in England had its own drum and bass sound. DJ Crust, Ronnie Size, DJ Die, the whole Bristol scene had their sound, which was much starker and much darker than ours. Ours was more ironic, a bit tongue-in-cheek, a bit bouncy. These guys were just producing the darkest stuff I've ever heard. And so Goldie will still invite them to come and play in the club to introduce us to that sound. Um, DJ Chemistry, who was, a, who was a very important part of the scene, um, she was the original A&R for Metalheads, the label, Goldie's ex-girlfriend introduced Goldie to the music and the scene as a whole. Um, and she was part of a DJ uh, Chemistry and Storm, a, a, a double act for two a t a two women DJing in the drum and bass scene from very early on. And there were always women DJs in the drum and bass scene, whether it was DJ rap. It's become more boy-based now, like a bit bro-steppy, but we, we had a lot more going on back then. Um, that, that's what I found interesting about yeah. your pictures, was there was... Um, there did seem to be a complete kind of equality between yeah. um, men and women yeah. within the scenes. Absolutely. Yeah, because don't forget, we'd put all that, uh, dare I say, bullshit of the 80s and all that bullshit to, to the side. It's like, this is our scene and our rules. We're not having any of that. It just doesn't work. Like, no one wants to go into a sausage fest. You know, no one wants to just be surrounded by cocks. It's just not cool. <laughs> I'm sure a few of the women here might disagree. <laughs> No, they actually no, no. I've I've been. To, I, I remember going to Body and Soul the first time in my life in New York, that I'd seen women like feel so comfortable in the club they would take their tops off and dance topless without it being weird or anything, or without it being sexual. It's like, hold on, this is a hot club. The boys are doing it, the guys are doing it, and I was like, this is it. I'm, it has to be equality, otherwise it's just horrible. And that, that was shot through this scene. No, that was house music in New York, unfortunately. I meant the idea of men and women. Yeah, totally, yeah. throughout the scene. Early early jungle was always equal. Um, this is why drum and bass became so difficult, because as it went on, it became less and less feminine, and that just and the, all the girls went straight to garage, and that's why garage became a thing. And you can almost chart music by when the boys take over, and then it moves, and then it just literally goes down a rabbit hole, and then the women move on into other things, and then that becomes a new scene to go to, garage being one of them. And Cleveland, Cleveland Watkins was the MC. Again, Goldie did a great job in terms of picking a jazz singer to be the MC in, in the club. Yeah, I mean, I've seen him yeah. Yeah, as a jazz singer. Yeah. So. And Goldie took him on as an MC, which was really interesting because then he didn't have a delay on the mic, so he'd have to go things like, in the night, 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 night. <laughs> he had to sort of fake it out, and he did that really well. So um, it was really cool, really spiritual. But yeah, this is what would happen. Groove Rider would come on around about maybe 10 or 11 and he would drop some devastating plates and everyone would fucking lose their minds and just crowd around that box just to see what he's playing. Because as you can see on the turntables, there are dub plates. So essentially, the one on the right's made at Music House on Holloway Road. Um, so on a Friday night, if you're a producer, you'd go down to Holloway Road and drop off your dats so that hopefully Groove Rider would have a listen and go, that's good enough to cut. Bear in mind that every plate that's been made costs around £40 to cut. And this was in 1990s. I think you could buy a house in Stratton for 50 quid. So. Um, so it was very expensive. And so you'd have to... So, so he'd be cutting these plates and then playing like fresh music out of the studio right there on a Sunday night. And it would, that's where... And many of the producers that I'd go down there with were just, you know, praying 
fingers crossed that their tune might get played that night. Well, that's, I mean, that's something else about it, that this is total sound system way of doing things. Mm. I mean, in the same way as... I mean, there was a place above a chicken shop in Finsbury Park that used to cut dubs, and this was probably a little before this, yeah. and um, there was always people... Jazzy was one of them hanging about outside there. Then before that, in the 70s sound system days, there was a guy called John Hessel who would um, cut dubs in, in his front room in Putney. Wow. And he, he used to work at a cutting place. They'd shut down and they gave him the lathe. He took it home, put it in his front room. And on Friday afternoon, you'd have a queue of sound men down his front path and into the street with uh, their tapes under their arms that they'd cut on Thursday to get their dubs cut for the for the weekend. And uh, he'd be doing it in his front room. And then about sort of eight o'clock, his missus would have had enough because she wants to watch the television. Yeah. And she'd just throw him out. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was funny sometimes when I would be at Music House trying to cut a dub plate, and then Josh Ucker would turn up, and that was it. It's over. <laughs> it was, he's cutting dubs for the rest of the day. You, it was a queuing system, and you just had to wait your turn. And it could be eight hours in this place waiting just to put your music onto a bit of vinyl, just so you can play it out on a Friday night. And that, and that was, you know, this is exactly the same thing. I mean, what I'm, one of the strands I'm exploring in this afternoon is this kind of line of sort of sound system culture that essentially hasn't changed, you no. know, since the 1960s when this would have been going on. Absolutely. Uh, that's Storm. No. Yeah, that's Storm. And then we saw chemistry earlier. Um, Going back to the shop beforehand, I just wanted to point something out. See how Storm's wearing a Missoni dress there? That's the kind of swag us junglers have got. Just remember that. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, so that's Storm as well, playing every week, a resident DJ. Um, and she brought an amazing you know, energy to the space, as well as chemistry. And when they go back to back, they'd really, I don't know, I don't like to use the word intelligent, but they really went there. The music they played was smart. And it was really beautiful, as well as much as anything else. Um, and right, so these guys are like old men now, but that's Loxy on the right. I've forgotten the, I've forgotten the guy in the night. But anyway, I don't think they knew each other at the time, but they went on to form a double act of Loxy and. Um, anyway, yeah, they what went on to form. What amazes me is how young they look. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we're all young, I suppose. On a school night, too. Yeah, that's true. That's so true, actually. Yeah, college the next day. Um, but yeah, they were allowed to do the warm-up sets, so all the youngers would basically do the first sort of between six and seven sets. Um, father and son. So um, yeah, so son passed away recently. Father's still going strong. He's a photographer, but basically the s the father was Goldie's flatmate, um, and so I'd go around to Gus's house to uh, see Goldie, and if Goldie wasn't there, I'd play chess with him. Um, I think why, why I picked this was it's it just seemed like an, uh, a snapshot of the inclusivity yeah. of the jungle scene. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, father and son raving. Um, yep. So on the plate there must be Ed Rush. Um, Ed Rush made some devastating tunes. Um, very dark, very minimalist. Um, Techniques turntable and a Stanton needle. I suppose what I was, I was just again yeah. illustrating the whole kind of sort of sound system ethic of it and yeah. how the attention to detail, how serious this was. Yeah, it's interesting. On the right, you have a, a plate cut up music house, and on the left, because Goldie's got a ton of cash, what's that, Tape Mastering? What's the, what's the place? Metropolis. 
that could be Metropolis mastering over on the left, that which you could still go there to play buy plates, but they are the most expensive mastering house on the planet. Um, but yeah, that's the levels that these guys would have to invest to have a, a set. You know, this is what a DJ would have to do to make sure that he's got songs that no one else has got on a weekly basis. On a weekly it. basis, yeah. Now, what I've got really Clayton. is a, a, sel a selection of um, I don't know punters, and I I just. You are having a moment. Yeah. Um, it's a selection of um, punters at, at this thing. And I just called it Smiles because yeah. everybody's smiling in it. You know, it, it, it is like this thing that... Yeah. No, it, it was a safe space. You know, it was a Sunday night and everyone felt safe. Everyone felt nice to be out. Um, yeah, and yeah, drinks are cheaper back then. But then again, no one bought drinks. You always smuggled in your own. Um and everyone, everyone was in a good place because it was a relief. It was a Sunday, you know. And I think some of the, because it, it was semi, not industry, but everyone was involved in the scene in some way. It was quite nice to be, sort of see everyone on a Sunday and relax a bit more than it would be to be at a proper rave that finishes at six in the morning. That's, that's a really interesting sort of turn of phrase you've used because um, when I was writing Bass Culture about 30 odd years ago, I um, interviewed this old time sound man, Jarvigo from um, uh, Labyrinth Grove. And... He was describing what it was like the f very first sound system days in London. And he said, uh, oh, it's just somewhere where you could go, have a drink and think of home. And that's pretty much what you said, yeah. not to think of home, but yeah. just this place where you could go, feel safe and relax. And I find it really interesting that, uh, you know, in 40 years, nothing much had yeah. changed. Yeah. I think safe spaces are still important. You know, we definitely need them. Um, and lastly, what I wanted to ask you yeah. about this one was so many of your pictures have these streak effects on yeah. them. And I just really wondered, was that on purpose and how did you do it? Yeah, I had to, I had to do it, really. Um, as I said, it was, a, it, was a, it was a feature, basically, on the camera that I've got. It had this feature on it, which was designed for Japanese couples to take pictures of each other after dinner with, this, with the moon behind them. And it's like called a night. That's a really specific feature for a camera. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was a quite an interesting camera. You'd buy this book, and it would have this barcode reader, and you'd have all these different settings, and it had like romance night setting one. It's like right. Let me try that. Program the computer, and what that essentially meant was that it would fire the flash, but keep the shutter open at around a fifth of a second. No, 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 more than that. It's like maybe around, yeah, maybe around five seconds, basically. So the shutter would stay open for five seconds and the flash would fire. So what that meant was that the flash fires and freezes the subjects as you see them. And as the flash disappears, it goes, the room goes back to darkness and all that's left creeping through are the trails of light that are actually in the room, the ambient lights in the room, which is the three yellow lights, well, those lights in the background there. Because essentially the club was in complete darkness. Um, and I felt what, you, what what that gave you was it froze motion, but it gave you action as well. So you could see people's body movements as well as sort of freeze them in their moment. And I thought that was an important part of, that's the best I could do with them. Because when I shot, when I did my early tests and just shot with a straight flash, by freezing movement is not enough. You just, it doesn't give you any indication as to where you are or what's happening. This is the only way of actually explaining to you what's really going on. Um, and it was a lovely thing, I think. They know. really are. I mean, it, it, I, I thought they just looked fantastic and and gave the scene a look almost. You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And it's it's funny. Recently, um, these 
junglists, like the first jungle couple, their first jungle child, they got married recently, and it was for their Mendy, which is basically a rave that happens before the wedding. And they wanted it to, they sort of booked me to do the job, and they said, could you do it in a junglist style? So I was like, right, I'll do it. So I, I pulled out the old camera, and I shot a wedding in this style. And they played original Nutter as the, on, the, on, the, on the night. And fucking hell, Granny's going off. Just <laughs> It's just going mad, and I'm clicking away in that drum and bass style. But it's, it's a really great way of capturing movement and energy and good, good vibrations, really. Oh, it certainly did that. Now, has anyone got um, questions for Eddie? Someone must have. Hi, I've, I've got questions. I have statements because this is of my time. Okay, um, and okay, there's a there. whole posse so of... Could you um, sorry, keep it brief, I will please. keep it brief. Um, and Blue Note, miss it. Um, I'm curious because two things. Because uh, One, the impact you feel Ronnie Size had on the scene and the mainstream of of, of Dominant Bass when he won the Mercury. Mm. And two, I really appreciate you talking about the gender aspect, yeah. really really important, because I think sometimes a lot of music that's seen as really physical, yeah. it seems as in it's exclusive, you know, it excludes women. Yeah. But even now, with friends, when we go out and they have their trainers in their bag, purely for if they hear a drum and bass track. Yeah. Um, and there's something incredibly liberating about it. And what strikes me is that there is something about it that feels it will never, ever age. Yeah. And I'm curious about how... Yeah, and I've got one more question really quickly. You can choose which one you want to answer because I have to leave soon. How on earth, as a raver, did you separate yourself from raving and taking photographs? Because I would find that incredibly difficult. And That's actually the most interesting yeah. of the three <laughs> questions. So let's go with that one. Yeah, yeah. How did I say? I, 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 right, I, I kind of didn't. I, I went there with one roll of film every weekend, and I was there every week for like as long as it was at the Blue Note. And I would shoot my roll of film until it was done. But you. I just knew where the sweet spots were, and then once I knew that thing had happened, where Groove Rider dropped the first sort of five to ten hot tunes that he had, then I could sort of relax and get into it and enjoy myself. Um, but I, I couldn't really separate the two. And I tell you what, drum and bass gave me as well. It helped me write more because it's usually playing, dancing to all instrumental music allows your mind to sort of write in its own way, like you're just literally writing your own soundtracks and thinking your own way through things, and that was that was a beautiful thing. Uh, but did I separate myself? I couldn't really. I had to be in it. I really had to be. I had to be by the booth, hearing Groove Rider play his tune, going, what the fucking tune is this? Run over to the booth. Then you just hear Goldie screaming in the distance, and as he runs over, you turn around and snap. So you, 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 you're in that rave scenario, and if you see someone and he's got that grin on his face like he's had a really good pill or something and you just just do him a favour and take a, a picture because you look great, you know, mate. And that's that's what I, I really like yeah. about these pictures. I think you've so honestly documented yeah. the thing with no filter at all. You no. haven't um, separated well, yourself from it. I was free and Goldie gave me complete carte blanche to do this and that felt really nice to just walk the circuit of the room, just keep going and, and just walk, walk, walk until the film had run out and then go in. And it was a small club. It was a really small club, and that was nice. And I could refine my style for that club. Uh, he's shooting on an 18mm lens, I think. So it's quite wide angle. Um, and he didn't, you know, the film I bought was easily the most expensive film around at the time. But he didn't mind. He, he covered the cost. Because the way it would work was I would shoot on the Sunday, drop off the films on Monday, be in the darkroom on Tuesday, and by Wednesday afternoon be round his house with a wedge of prints just to sort of drop on his tape floor, just to show him what happened the week before, and he'd pull out a wedge and then use it 
and then that would run in the media or wherever it went to go. Because I think it really was important to say that we had to rewrite and we had to address the negative aspect of the media and what they said about us as human beings and what we're about. And we had to then put our own story out there. And that's why years later, Drum and Bass, Jungle, it's all safe, it's great. Because if we'd followed what the media said about us, we'd, I don't know what we'd, where we'd be, you know. Okay, anyone else? You've talked about the media attacks on, on, on jungle music. What's your view about today's attacks on, on drill music and the banning of some drill I mean, tracks I mean and, and videos? It's, it's, and it's a shame. It's, it's, it's a cheap, it's a cheap, you know, it's a political, it's a cheap political win, basically, picking on literally kids, literally kids making videos with their iPhones. Uh, so for my sins, I was uh, I teach uh, young offenders in Brixton, and uh, one of my young offenders was the Six Seven group, and I remember saying to those kids, "Going, you know what, you kids, you need to start making videos. You know, put it out on YouTube. It's, no one gives a fuck about your gang war. Do you know what I mean? Put it on YouTube." And they were like, "Yeah, we'll do that." What I didn't think they'll do was that they would use that same said video to actually attack other gangs on other estates. But it seemed to work because 10 years later, they had to negotiate a peace with all the other estates so they can go all go and tour together. It's funny how money sort of gets, how money brings people together like that. Yeah. Okay, one more question, fellow in the grey shirt. Um, you mentioned earlier about the star misusing photography to get their message across. Did that mean you ever felt the need to withheld certain photos or censor your own photos to stop that happening? Or? No, I've never felt, I've never, because I always felt like my photos go to people that understand what we're doing and um, the star was a very specific case in point because they really they enjoyed that sort of thing. They actually get off on it. Um, whereas there's nothing I'd, there's nothing in these shots that would seem to reinforce any kind of negative environment or any kind of negative experience. I never once saw a fight in there. Um, I mean, obviously our view on drug taking has changed over the years now. So, but that was the only thing that may have been a moral issue. Certainly on a Sunday, I don't know. Um, you know. Um, and yeah, and and really, it's it's it stands up over the test of time as being, uh, as I was, I was thinking about it, how how all of us, all you know, you've got to remember, like, I went I went to a typical London school, and all everyone, all the boys, everyone was racist, everyone was racist, and then something happened in 1988, and it all came back from you know summer holidays, and all the racist boys weren't racist anymore; they were like really nice and sweet, and I was like, what the fuck happened? And they started growing their hair. And they started having middle partings, and they started dancing. It's like you guys never danced. And then it, it basically, the ecstasy and the summer of love came along, and that just switched everyone's heads around. And what happened was, racist people—if you put them in a room to dance with normal people—stop being racist. And that's what we did. We just danced, all of us, all ravers, all under one roof to one tune. It solved all our problems. So, that, and from '88 onwards, London's been a much better place for it. Just, you know, turn on the tune, let's start dancing. And it's, you know, psychotherapy, I had to study this, and psychotherapists have said that mirroring body movement is how we develop empathy. So let's all dance together. Okay, um, let's hear it for Eddie Ochoa. Okay, now, um, you've had far too much fun, so we're not going to have a break now. We're going to go straight into um, Fabio, okay? Think so.
Right, so anybody that wants to have a quick smoke and join Fabio, off you go.